Hi, welcome to Grace Intercept. The goal of this podcast is to help us have an increasingly clear understanding of grace. My name is Jerry Moldenhauer. Thank you for joining us today. This is part three of four episodes entitled Denial of Reality, Reality of Denial. In previous episodes of Grace Intersect, we have been talking about, oh, the last 12 years when October of 2008, I had a very serious heart issue that I was denying the reality of quite significantly. And our family was going through a very difficult time with finances and, and activities and health. Then once that was passed, we had spiritual transformation going on. The next several years was a time of reaching for a new understanding of grace, but not knowing really what to do with that. And then on December 31st of 2017, I had another heart attack. That one was extremely serious and was recounted in a previous episode of Grace Intersect. If you haven't heard that, you might want to go back to it. Then a couple of weeks ago, had another hiccup. Well, okay, it was another heart attack, a minor one. Caught it at a time when it was uh, not nearly as serious as the previous one. However, I now sport four stents in the heart and am very thankful for the technology that allows that. Meanwhile, a significant part of all of this, of course, is my wife Paula. And she's been sharing her side of the ordeals that I've put her through during that time. And having gone through that with my own father several times, I know that the family is on the receiving end. As much as the person that is having the illness hates to admit it, it's going to impact them very, very strongly. Paula has been an incredible support through all of that. I used a phrase in an earlier podcast that I think applies very strongly, and that is she demonstrates unconditional patience. And I am very, very appreciative of that. Thank you for joining us, Paula, once again. Thank you for inviting me to tell my part of the story. I think the podcast that begun this series of conversations that we've been having, you were talking about the heart attack in 2017, and you said that I received a phone call and I was left hanging and that I would get to tell my story one of these days. So I guess that's today. Yep, I left you hanging on a very uh, short call, and all you knew is that there was something serious going on again. Yeah, I was with my friend Maria. She's the mother of the young woman who is now our beautiful daughter-in-law, Ariel. At that point, Sam and Ariel were not married. Ariel had invited me to her parents' home for an art day. So we were sitting at their dining table, drinking coffee, doing paint-and-sip kind of things where... Ariel's gifted. She was saying, do this, do that. And Marie and I were trying to follow her on the canvas. And we had done those before and had a lot of fun with it. What's interesting to me as I'm saying that right now is I haven't done a paint and sip since. And I wonder if there's a reason. Maybe I have a block. I maybe need to, just like after a car accident, I went and drove by the spot where the accident is. I think I need to do a paint and sip. So (laughs) I got to get over that hump again. But we were doing this paint and sip. The phone rang. I was painting. Sam was sitting there watching us. And I said, hey, it's your dad. Answer. And he answered. He said, well, mom, he wants to talk to you. And so I put my paints down and took the phone. And you said, I'm having a heart issue. They're taking me to the hospital. And I said, oh, okay, which one? I don't know. Okay, can you tell me where to meet you? I don't know. Click. 
And I found out later you fainted. That's why you hung up, because you were about to faint. And when you came to, the paramedics were putting the electrodes on you and trying to get you into the ambulance and start the process of literally saving your life. So I was left on that end. I started driving. There are two hospitals that are close to us. I didn't know which one to go to. I started with the one that was the closest. I walked in and said, I think my husband's here or being brought here by ambulance. And they said, well, we do have an incoming ambulance, but we don't know who's in it. I said, well, is there any way to know if it's my husband? And they said, no. They ushered me into a waiting room that was away from the typical ER waiting area and left me there. My cell phone had no service. I couldn't call the kids or anybody to let them know what was going on. I couldn't get my cell phone to work. I don't remember why. I kept sitting there, sitting there. The nurses are not coming to tell me what's going on. Over the loudspeaker, I'm hearing that there's a cardiac room, whatever, incoming ambulance. I'm hearing all of this over the loudspeakers. Still, they're not coming to invite me into the situation, and I'm starting to panic. I finally thought, well, I have to go to the bathroom. I'll just stroll down the hall and see what I can see when I go to the bathroom, which really my goal was to get myself in that room, whether I was invited or not. And so I did. I went to the room where they said the incoming ambulance was, and you were there. And I guess they were about to call for me because they assumed I had been called for at that point. I'm trying to speak to you. I'm sorry. I'm trying to speak to you and the doctor's just saying all this stuff to me about what he's going to do. And all I want to do is talk to my husband. I'm kissing you on the head and you're not looking good. And, and, um, so they told the nurse she needs to take his things out to their car. I think that was their way of getting me out of there quickly, but letting me see you. So the nurse escorts me out with this big bag of your clothes and stuff, and I'm walking out to the car, and I can't get my phone to work. I don't know why. There's a total stranger, and I'm walking by him, and I just looked at him. I said, do you have a cell phone? And he said, yeah. Like, does it work? Yeah. May I use it? I mean, it was just clipped like that. There was no please. There was no social grace. And he handed me a cell phone, and I could not think of a single number that I knew. I couldn't figure out how to call my kids or anybody. So I couldn't think of the numbers. And, um, but I needed to let them know which hospital you were in because I had let them know that something was going on as I was driving to the hospital, but I didn't know where to find you. I couldn't dial his phone. And I just remember saying, can you dial for me? And he said, yes. And, and I remember just sitting there going 720-720-720. And finally, Finally, the number came to me, you know, and so it was Sarah's number, which <laughs> when she got her first cell phone, you know, was, I was still dialing from home. Everything wasn't stored in the phone like it is now. I have no idea anybody's numbers anymore. So I was able to let Sarah know where we were. I went back in. They took me up to the surgical waiting area again, just really there by myself and no communication for a long time about what was going on. And then the family started arriving and some of my friends from my prayer group started arriving. That little tiny waiting room was overflowing with support for me. And we were all there together waiting to hear what would happen. So (laughs) they willed you pass after you'd had your stent put in. 
They had explained to me that you had indeed had a heart, heart attack, and it was again in the Widowmaker. It had completely closed down, but the block periodically, I guess. Their expected heart damage. Then when they wheeled you to your room, they came past there so that we could see you. I remember, you know, just reaching out to touch your face and you saying, hey, my car's over at the workout gym. You need to get it home. And I'm just like, seriously, dear, I think we can figure all this out on our own. Like, just let it go. <laughs> just be. <laughs> you have a very good memory. <laughs> I just remember shaking my head of that. Here you'd almost died and you were worried about me getting your car from the gym where you'd been working out. So that was kind of the beginning of a very strange time in 2018 because you didn't just pop back into health like you had 10 years before with that stint. Not only did you have trouble, you reacted to the statins that they gave you. You were getting very weak. In the hospital that day, you were having some issues with your eyes. Before they released you, you said you were your vision was not the same and everybody was just kind of blowing you off, honestly. We asked some questions about your thyroid because you'd been having some thyroid issues and we were not given information. So began a journey of about four months, I think, where it was becoming apparent that something else was going on besides the heart issues. Eventually, you were diagnosed with Graves' disease. Not only were you diagnosed with Graves' disease, but we were sent from specialist to specialist without anyone giving us any answers how to treat you, how to help you. And your eyes were beginning to protrude. You couldn't see. You were having to give up driving, at least mostly. That was kind of where we were at when we went to Saratoga. And you talked on that first podcast in this series about on the way to Saratoga, recounting God's mercies to you and while you were there really discovering him in a deeper, more beautiful way. I said on another podcast that for me, that was like that moment that I saw you really stepping into that open, lush green field of grace. But to be honest with you, it was not all sweet and sugar between me and the Lord. I wasn't like jumping up and down that 10 years of prayer had been answered because it was such a hard time. And I had been praying so long to see you in that field. I'm thinking, okay, well, great. He's in his field of grace, but life sucks. <laughs> That's where I was, to be honest with you. Well, it was a really hard time because of the Graves disease. We didn't have any idea what Graves disease was. Never heard of it before. The doctors weren't giving us much to work with on that. They just said it had to run its course and wherever it settled, it would settle. And that's where you're going to live the rest of your life with it. That may be with grotesquely protruding eyes. It may require decompression surgery to prevent further damage to the eyesight. It well, may require taking the thyroid out and being on medication. When they had every expectation also of a reconstruction surgery once your eyes settled to try to put them back into alignment. But while we were in the process, what we were walking out is almost daily there for a while, you were losing your ability to function visually. It felt like to me you were going blind. I don't know if that would be a technically medically correct term, but that's how it felt because you were not able to use your eyes in a functional manner anymore. The double vision was so severe that it was very difficult to use any one eye. I could use one eye, but not both. I did have eye patches. I'd trade from one eye to the next on occasion. 
because looking through both eyes, everything was double visioned. It was overlapped, kind of like a 3D movie without the glasses. Very hard to make any sense of that. And even walking, especially walking in unfamiliar areas, was very difficult. I remember you having to hold my hand from the time we left the door, practically. Yeah, you would stumble, you would fall. You had some pretty good falls when I wasn't watching you closely enough that I felt responsible for. Yeah. It, it, it was tough. And it was tough. Then I went ahead and just start researching on my own since the medical community wasn't helping a whole lot. And over time... Over hundreds of hours of research, uh, was able to find a diet that might be helpful and found a doctor who thought outside of the medical box uh, enough to consider other alternative uh, situations. And long story short, it's improved significantly in the right. two years since that has happened. Right. But to go back to the Saratoga, from my perspective, I want to set that up a little bit more. I remember you can you tell the story about you're in the grocery store and the checker's afraid of you? I'm not remembering that really well. <laughs> I mean, I vaguely remember it, but... I just remember you came home and you said when you checked out that the girl checking you out was young and that she literally was shrinking away from you with fear in her eyes, which she probably had watched too many scary movies, but you had to speak to her and say, I have thyroid eye disease. That's why my eyes are, are looking like this. And she visibly relaxed and treated you normally at that point, but she was literally afraid of you. Yeah, I do remember. I don't remember the details as well as I'd like, but I do remember that for sure. I only use that to illustrate how significant this was. Yeah. And as I'm looking at you right now, you look completely normal. I'm getting there. Not quite, but I'm but improved. Anyone who didn't know that you'd had Graves' disease would not yeah. think that you once looked with your eyes protruding to the point that someone thought you were a monster, I guess, or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So it was significant. Another thing to set up this time in Saratoga when you had this beautiful epiphany from my perspective, I think it's also important to just talk about God's faithfulness to us financially in that time. I had been working as a freelance writer and not making a significant income and certainly not a stable income. You had been working in a job that was physically demanding. I didn't want to see you go through another winter. I had been praying for several months that you wouldn't have that job for another winter, not realizing what that really was going to mean. So you had just lost your job. Well, the company shut down thanks to your prayers, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, I got blamed for that. I don't think God shut down the company, but <laughs> but it, the, the prayers were answered. You did not do another winter in that job. But yes, the company shut down. So you had just lost your job, but you had not yet been able to get unemployment. There was sort of a wait time or something. So when we came home from the hospital, we came home to no income. I remember walking in the door and I remember just standing there in your arms, grateful that you were alive, grateful to be in your arms. And I remember silently telling the Lord, you know, for a lot of years we had some financial issues and I stood on your promises and prayed my heart out for your provision and blah, blah, blah. I ain't got it in me. I, I'm just telling you, I'm not doing it. If you want to take care of us, you take care of us. I don't have any energy to pray about this. Maybe for me, that was a really new and deep understanding of grace. We talked in one of the previous podcasts about how we, we want to make it to be about us somehow. I thought walking the Christian life was a whole lot about me doing that, like kind of gutting it out, standing on those promises of scripture and trusting God as my provider. And in that moment, 
I was so completely wiped out emotionally, spiritually, and physically from your near death that that's when real grace kicked in because I couldn't do all the right things. And in fact, the way I spoke to the Lord was not especially kind. It was just basically, I can't even talk to you about this, but we need help. Not only did help come, help came repeatedly. Eventually your unemployment came through, but that wasn't livable. And there was also, you know, some weeks and months there without it. So from the beginning, I think right that January when I was so stressed, a friend of ours got a bonus in his work and they tithed some of that to us. And that happened repeatedly. The choir where I was a staff singer working part-time at a church nearby. Next thing I knew, one day, a bunch of them all came together. I think we were given $1,000 from that choir, different individuals who contributed. Maybe it was more, I don't remember now. Before all was said and done, the Lord not only sustained us fully, paid every single bill for that six months, he even paid off our credit cards. And we didn't have much on a credit card, but we had a little bit that needed to be covered and completely sustained us. And I just feel like that's something to talk about with grace because it wasn't our faithfulness that brought that provision. It was his love. It was his protection and his provision and his faithfulness. We were totally dependent. There was nothing we had to offer, nothing that we could do. It was totally amazing how God worked through people to generously and unbeknownst to each other. I mean, th these weren't people coming together. No, it's coming from all kinds of different people in different right. states. Right. Multiple states. What was interesting in my experience was having heard in a very real way from God saying, don't worry, don't hurry, while I'm lying in the hospital bed right after the heart attack. When I had to figure out what that really was and how do you practice that? How do you live that out? I had a sense of it during that whole time. There's this understanding that we don't have anything. We are totally flat out. And there's also this creeping, increasing understanding that it's okay. God's got this. It wasn't something that you could just lock on concretely and say, yeah, I can see God's got this because this, this, or this. It wasn't that. It was, God's got this. I don't know how. I don't know when. But God's got this. Well, and I'm working full-time now. But at the time, there was no going out to get a job your needs to be driven to the doctor and, and to be taken care of at that point, there was no full-time work option. I mean, it was really about trying to take care of you pretty much for the whole year, but especially those first six or eight months. And just another aside as to provision, about the time that all of that money kind of dried up, or maybe it didn't dry up. Maybe it was just the new provision. I ended up in a freelance writing job for a company and, and people can look it up. They have a podcast, 365 Christian Men. It's an inspirational true story every day about someone who just dared to trust God and do something beyond themselves. I ended up writing about 100 stories for them that I was paid for. And so during that time of your healing, even into the next year, as you were healing and getting better, you were more and more able to become independent. I was able to work from home. And so that was another provision. I mean, just through this whole thing, there was so much provision. This concludes part three of a four-part series entitled, 
Denial of Reality, Reality of Denial. Thank you for listening today. My name is Jerry Moldenhauer, and this is the Grace Intersect Podcast. As we process grace together, please know your thoughts and questions are always welcome. Comments may be made at the graceintersect.com website or by emailing comments at graceintersect.com. Have a great day.